Well, if you have a Bible, if you open it to Luke 7, I'm going to talk about the centurion, centurion faith, part 3. Luke 7, we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, Now when he had ended, Jesus had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people. He entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loves our nation, and he's built us a synagogue. Well, then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. I'm not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, Well, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. We've been fellowshipping with our friend, Certain the Centurion. I guess his first name Certain. That's what it says, a certain Centurion for the past few weeks. These guys were placed over a hundred men. A century is a hundred years. Century, hence the name Centurion. Well, the thing is, you didn't become, and this is going to apply a little bit here as we speak. You didn't get to be a Centurion overnight. A legion would have 6,000 soldiers, and within those legions, there were these certain elite group of men. And there'd be these groups where they were veterans that had fought over 16 years and over. And it was generally out of these groups, these experienced men, that they would pick the centurions. The centurion were the best of the best. And it said this in this book, this history book, in choosing their centurions, the Romans, they didn't look so much, it said, for these daring, fire-eating guys, for these passionate guys, but rather for men who were natural leaders, and they possessed a stable and imperturbable temperament. They're even-keeled guys. It says, not men who will open the battle and launch attacks, but those who will stand their ground even when hard-pressed and will die in defense of their post. It's these sturdy, stable, level-headed men. These are who the centurions are. In the New Testament, you could go through, there are many times the centurions are talked about in the New Testament. The other famous one we know of is Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Here we have a person like this, a veteran, battle-hardened soldier, someone with an even temperament. He's looking at Jesus. And he's not seeing Jesus like, I don't watch Jesus movies, but I've seen a little bit here and there, and I know how they portray him. I mean, they portray him as this, many times, as this soft, effeminate, meek, almost a wimp. And he's not seeing this. He's looking at Jesus, this centurion, and he's seeing a man's man here. Not a weak person. He wouldn't have had any respect for that, for a wimp. But he's seeing a person here with true strength, power, and authority. And this centurion could recognize this. In other words, Jesus earned the respect of a man that had earned the respect of Rome, if I can put it that way. 
Now, we got to remember something here. The Romans, the way they thought, they were brutally practical, if I can put it that way. What would be transcendent power, which would be like this power that is just so far above us and really doesn't have any practical experience for us, they had no use for that kind of power to talk about the gods and just all this stuff that's esoteric talk, high talk. No time for that. The kind of power that a Roman soldier like the centurion would have had respect for would have been power that could be applied to everyday life. That to them was true power. Power that could conquer nations and cities. He is seeing Jesus. This man, I believe, it doesn't say this in the text, but I believe, you know, faith has to have a basis. And he's coming to Jesus seeing that he knows there's something special about him. I think he saw him in operation. If he didn't, I mean, he would have heard the reports. And what had happened up to this point in the ministry of Jesus, he's curing every known disease at that time, every kind of disease restoring limbs, commanding spirits. They're talking through these people, commanding them to leave, and here this person's changed. He's seeing all of that. And to that, that's power. That centurion could respect that. His commands produce results, and he's seeing that. He's putting this all together. And who's doing this for him? Who's giving him this understanding, though, we've said? Because it's bringing faith in him. And the only person that could open a person's eyes, whether it's this centurion or anyone, to recognize Jesus for who he is, is who? That's God's grace. God the Father's done that. We've seen this centurion. He's not typical in a lot of different ways. We said that he has this young slave that he cares about deeply. And most centurions back then, we said they were cruel to their slaves, or at best, they'd be just indifferent to how they're doing. Treat them however they wanted to. But this boy, this young slave, is really loved by his master. And he's in this deathly sick condition, paralyzed, racked with pain. The New King James says he was dreadfully tormented. And I'm sure it was really hard, really hard on this centurion to sit and watch this. And he's wanting to help this boy. And it says there, if you look in 7 verse 3, it says, when he heard of Jesus, heard he's in town, he sends for him, sent to Jewish elders. Like we said, that's another unusual thing to do for a Roman centurion because Jews and Romans hated each other. But this guy says he loved the Jews, loved their religion, built them a synagogue, one that they worshipped in. And the reason he could do that is these guys were very high paid. These centurions were paid way more than the common soldier, depending on how long they'd actually been a centurion. But they had a lot of money. So they come to Jesus. We need you to come to this guy's house. He's got a problem, and we need you to pray for his servant. And he's worthy, they're telling Jesus. Look what he's done. He loves us. That doesn't happen very often, and he's built us this synagogue. And like we said last week, do you think that Jesus went to pray for the centurion's servant in obedience to his request because the centurion was worthy. Here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Does he bless us because we're worthy? Is that why he answers our prayer? Because we're worthy. The only reason that he answers our prayers is because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. He answers our prayers and blesses us because we're united to him. He sees him. 
Paul likens it to a marriage union. And in a marriage union, you share each other's possessions, don't you? I mean, here in America, you don't, but typically you do in a marriage. <laughs> Got all these ways of dividing things, his money, her money. Well, typically a marriage is it's all one, becomes one. And that's what we have going on with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this great exchange, it's called, in theological circles. And the thing is, he got the short end of the stick in the great exchange because all he got from us was what? Our sin, our shame, our humiliation on the cross. But what do we get from him? We get what we never could produce and what we need to be able to produce before God, and that is a perfectly righteous life. He lived a perfectly just, sinless life, and that is put on our account like we did because we're united to him. Wow. And we get the Father's love. The Father's loves us because we're in Christ. That's why he loves us. Because we need to see we are unworthy. Isn't that what the centurions said? To receive anything from the Lord. We receive all of what we receive, all of his blessings is because of his grace and love. Like Greg preached when he preached on God's love. The prodigal comes home. He practiced his speech ahead of time. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And he said, make me as one of thy hired servants. And when he met the father and the father sees his repentance and brokenness, he starts his speech that he practiced. Probably practiced it several times. I don't know. He starts off saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. And I'm thinking the father's probably agreeing with that. And son, you need to make this confession because we do need to confess our sins, don't we? For God to have mercy on us. He that confesses his sin and forsakes them shall have mercy. The father's like, you need to do that. That's fine. Keep talking. That's like David. God had forgiven him, but he had to confess, I have sinned when he was confronted by Nathan, the prophet. But he goes on. Sin against heaven and in thy sight. And then he says, I am no more worthy to be called thy son. The same confession the centurion made. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And the father let him say that too, didn't he? Because there's nothing wrong with humbling yourself in that way before the father. Nothing wrong with that. But he didn't let the son finish what else he was going to say. Make me as one of thy hired servant. He stopped him before that came out, didn't he? Never came out of his lips. And why was that? Because a hired servant is not part of the family. And the son, on the basis of his repentance, his confession of sin, and his humility, he is going to be restored fully as a member of the family. That's what it's all about. And that's what God has done for us. We are called servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are not called hired slaves. We're not hired servants because we've been adopted into the family of God and given full sonship. And this is the amazing thing. We're not just given sonship rights and privileges, but our nature has been changed, hasn't it? We were by nature the children of wrath, but now our nature's changed and we partake of the divine nature. That's what it says in 2 Peter 1. Through the promises, we are partakers of the divine nature. Adam couldn't have said that. Not like we can. It's because of our union with Christ. We're not gods, are we? 
We're not saying that, but we are one flesh with our Lord Jesus Christ through our union with him. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And I mean, that is no small thing, this adoption. Galatians 4, 4 says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, he says, you are no more a servant. No more servants but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. The centurion confesses, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. He's humbling himself, isn't he? But that doesn't hinder his faith, though, does it? That humility he's had, that humbling. You would think that great humility would be a hindrance to great faith. That's the way it is to the world. Because the way they look at things, especially athletes, and really just people in the business world, if they don't boast of their abilities and their accomplishment and have this confidence in themselves, that they won't succeed. That's the way they think they need to boast and think there's something. You know, you've got to believe in you. You've got to believe in yourself, boy. If you want to do anything, you know, foghorn leghorn, my son's always saying, boy, I say, boy, you've got to believe in yourself. But it's not like that because true faith is the opposite, isn't it? It is this abasement which is needed. It's saying, I am helpless. This is what true faith is. I'm helpless, have no power or goodness to change this situation that I'm facing. Lord, please help me. Only you can. Isn't that what the centurion's doing here? He's recognizing, man, I'm a big bad guy in the Roman army, but this situation with this sick child, I'm totally helpless. I can't do a thing about it. All my good deeds isn't going to bring healing to him. Jesus, I need you to help me. And Jesus says, that's great faith. That you come to me and you see that I can do it. Because it says this, faith and humility are wedded. It says this, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. It's the mighty hand of God that we need to humble ourselves under and cast our care on him. We're trusting you to help us through life. Everything we need has to come from you. We're just dependent on you. That's what faith is. What does he say to Jesus? What does this centurion say? Look in verses 7 and 8. He says this. He says, Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. He says, But say in a word. Just say in a word, and what will happen? My servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. I say unto one, go, he goes. Another, come, he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus heard that, it says, in verse 9. It says, he marveled. And what is it that caused Jesus to marvel? It's the centurion's insight. Jesus was not an impressive person to look at. But this man, this centurion, saw beyond the outward. He saw beyond Jesus' looks. We're back to what we said at the beginning. These men, these centurions, weren't picked because they were men of passion, but they were sound men of reason. And it's saying they were the backbone of the Roman army. Stable people, brave people, and they had sound judgment. 
So this centurion, he'd heard and he'd seen the authority of Jesus. Like I said, power and authority over every kind of disease. He ordered demons to be quiet and come out of the people and they obeyed. He heard his teaching. And this man of sound reason, he'd heard a lot of people say things and probably give a lot of speeches. This man here could recognize a person that was speaking with authority. And he recognizes that in the Lord Jesus more than, I mean, that would have been authority like no one had ever seen. I mean, the people were amazed. They'd never heard their teachers speak like that. And nobody in Rome, I guarantee you, would have spoke like that. So he comes to this conclusion at this point. I'm a commander with power. And I've got a hundred people under me that will do whatever I tell them to do. Go, come, do. And they'll do it. But this Messiah, this man, has far more power than I do. He is far more powerful than I am because he can do what I can't do. He can command nature and sickness and angels in the spirit realm things that are impossible for me, the centurion would have thought. But I see his word in his realm brings obedience. They obey. And his looking at this thinking, this is true power. This is true power, God's power. And he approaches Jesus and he's like, Lord, we've got something in common, the power of our word. I can speak a word and in my realm of authority, things happen. People obey, and that is because my authority is backed by the whole Roman government. I am under Rome's authority. Remember, he said, I also am a man under authority. He says, but you speak a word, and whatever you say happens, whatever you say happens, nothing can stand against your word because your authority is backed by God Almighty. He saw that. And your authority has a source that is unlimited, but I also see that you are under that authority. He could see that. I also am a man under authority, so you're under it too. And he says, on the basis of that, he says, I'm just asking you then, based on what I see and what I understand about the way things work, and they apparently work the same in the spiritual realm because I'm seeing you operate that way. On the basis of that, he says, just only speak a word. One word, and my servant shall be healed. And it says Jesus marveled. He marveled. And the reason he marveled is for the centurion's ability to comprehend his authority, power, and willingness to help in any impossible situation. He saw all of that. He's got confidence, and that's his great faith. In other words, what impressed Jesus was the centurion's assessment of him. That's what really impressed him. You might not remember, but last week at the beginning of the message, I said that I heard this man make this statement about the centurion's faith, and I thought this was good. And he said this, everything in this story and everything in your Christian life hinges on one thing, your estimation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your estimation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to ask ourselves, what do I think of Christ? That is the crucial question. What do I really think of this one that I'm calling my Lord and Savior? You know, Jesus asked at one time, who do you, asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? He'd ask all of us that, right? And the centurion answered that. He says, well, I think you're the one with absolute power. Lord has absolute power. You're obedient to God. 
you're doing his will, and he trusts you with that power. And we know he was obedient to his father to the point of death. And God could entrust him with all the power of heaven and earth, couldn't he? Because of that. But what I'm saying, the centurion banked everything on his assessment of Jesus. Based on what he saw, you know what the centurion did? He threw the word impossible out the door when it comes to Jesus. Based on what he saw. He knew that when Jesus spoke a word, it was done. He trusted in the living word of Jesus. A living word. The authority in his word. And we need to see that his word is still alive and powerful today. It is. What he said then... Those words that are in the New Testament, they still have the same power and authority today that they had back then. It's not just words on a page. His words that he spoke, the promises he made, the words he said are living words, alive and powerful, aren't they? They are, because he's still living to back them up. <laughs> That's the way it is. The question, do you see what the centurion saw? Do you see in Jesus what he saw? If he speaks a word, my situation's taken care of. Do you see that? Do you see the Lord Jesus as the one who has all authority? Do you believe that the word of Jesus still has power? Do you really believe that he'll still supply all of your needs? Do you really believe that he can deliver you from oppressing spirits like he did at that time? Do you really believe that the power of the Lord Jesus Christ can deliver you from a besetting sin? Maybe you're struggling with pornography, lust, anger, jealousy, a lot of different things. Depression. Can he deliver you from that? Can you see like the centurion that he'll send help by men or angels, whatever help you need? Can we see that? Do we see that in him? That's what the centurion saw, and that's what brought out of Jesus great faith. Oh, you see who I am, what I'm able to do, and that you can rest your case with me and my word. That is great faith. That's what he's saying. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, he says, all power or authority. The word is power in the King James. A lot of translations have it authority. That's really what he means. It's not dunamis. It's the Greek word for authority, but he says, All power or authority has been given to me, Jesus said, in heaven and earth. And when did Jesus say those words? After his resurrection is when he said that. And the centurion, before his resurrection, saw that Jesus had all power and authority. Before the resurrection, just speak a word and my servant will be healed. Can we believe that the risen Lord has greater power and authority now than when he walked the earth. I mean, at least he's got to have as much. And he says after he's raised and risen in his glorified body, all power, all authority over everything in heaven and in earth is with me. Go ye therefore. And he ends it by saying, and I am with you always. So that means if we're spirit-filled that is in us, that power and authority through the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ. Amen. Amen. It is. If he has all power and authority and he's with us, what won't he do for us? What won't he do for you? 
Matthew 17, when the disciples couldn't cast the demon out of the little boy. They came and asked Jesus, well, why couldn't we cast him out? And he didn't tell them, hey, it wasn't because you didn't yell out enough, you didn't try hard enough, or you just didn't feel it. He didn't give them that answer. He said, it's because of your unbelief. Or some of the newer translations will say, because of the littleness of your faith. Either way. But he went on to say, for verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you don't need to have great faith, Jesus is saying. Faith as the tiniest seed they knew at the time. Little faith. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move. And he adds at the end, nothing shall be impossible to you. Nothing shall be impossible to you. When he says nothing shall be impossible to you, does that mean he is saying that power is inherent in us? Is that in that sense? All things are possible, he says, to him that believes. Is he saying, you've got possibilities? I mean, that's not what he's saying because the power it is in us, but it's because it's in God. All things are possible to him to believe because of God's power, not because of some inherent power that we have. Because when Peter raised the lame man, Peter and John are walking to go to prayer, and that lame man asked for alms, and he's like, look, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto thee in the name of Jesus rise up and walk. And instantly his legs, immediately it says, instantly they received strength that didn't have it before. And it says the people gathered around. They'd seen that guy for 40 years sitting out in front of the temple. And all of a sudden, they said he's holding on to Peter and John. That guy's just so happy. And it said they're coming around and in wonder and in amazement at what has happened. Did Peter do what we just saw happen? <laughs> and in verse 12 of Acts 3, it says this. And when Peter saw it, he answered the people, and said this, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? He's saying it wasn't because of our power or because we were worthy our godliness that this man walked. It was because of the power of God. When Jesus says nothing shall be impossible to you, he doesn't mean we have this power inherent in us naturally. You following me? The power is in God. Not in their worthiness or their power. That did nothing. It was the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in his name. In a sense, I heard this said back years ago. Faith in the name and using the name of Jesus in a sense brings him down to the situation. In his name, it's the same as if he's the one ministering in that sense. In Acts 4, when they got persecuted at the end of that, they prayed a prayer. And at the end, they say, Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. They're praying forth from the Father that he stretch forth his hands to heal. Well, how does he do that? And in the name of Jesus, as if it's done in his name, as if he is the one, just like when he was on earth, except now it's the apostles, the church, whoever. He's doing it through them. It's his power working through them. Because you go on to read this. They went forth and they healed, trusting in that authority Jesus had given him, and they did what he did. Acts 4 goes on to say, There came also a multitude out of the cities round about into Jerusalem, bringing sick folk and them which were vexed with unclean spirits. And it says they were healed every one. 
Now that sounds just like something you'd pull out of the Gospels when they brought all the sick people to Jesus and it would say, He healed them all. Well, the same thing was happening through the apostles. The disciples healed everyone. They did what Jesus did because it was still Jesus doing it. In this sense, He's working through them by His Holy Spirit. You can't divide God up. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. So when we have the Holy Spirit, we have Jesus. It's not oneness. They're not the same, but they are the same. They're the same nature. God, you can't divide him up. What we need to pray for is God to open our eyes and see that he is making the same promise to us. Turn to John 14. I know we've read this before, but it's still, we've got to deal with what it says. John 14 Begin in verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. In verse 12. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Look at verses 13 and 14. And he says, and whatsoever, now, you shall ask in my name, what does he say? That will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. There is no way to exclude yourself from these promises if you're a believer. Anyone in here that is a believer, those are the words that are spoken to us. Because look what he says. Look back in verse 12. It says, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that believeth on me. Now, am I twisting anything to say that is not limited to the early church or to the apostles? He that believeth on me, that sounds like any believer on him at any time. I, I don't see a limit to that. So that's all of us in here, isn't it? I'm saying we all have to look at that then. Those are the words of our Savior and Lord that is saying that. He promised whatsoever we ask in his name, he would do it. Just like the centurion. Just like he did for the centurion. I think the problem is not that these promises don't work and we need to somehow explain them away. The problem is we need to pray that our eyes can be opened like the centurion to see the one that is saying this, that he is willing and able and has all power like he says he does, but that we can truly see it so that we can trust him for what he says. And not wonder, well, we hear this, but it just doesn't seem to work. What's the point of us getting together and studying and preaching the Bible and saying we believe the Word of God if it doesn't work? If it doesn't work, it's not because it's the Lord's fault, right? I mean, it's got to be something with us. If we had our eyes open, I think like the centurion, we wouldn't struggle like we do. I think all of us in here, we know that Jesus is almighty, but here is what we struggle with is, will he turn that almighty power in my direction? I think that's really where the struggle becomes. We're not sure that we can do that, if we can trust that. I think if we could only have our eyes open in the spiritual realm, we would see how powerful and willing he is to help us out. When 2 Kings 6, we know this story. You don't have to turn there. Elisha and his servant are in the city of Dothan, and they go to bed at night, and I was thinking they probably had just sung, Great is thy faithfulness together, and let's go to sleep, all right. 
But when Elisha's servant wakes up early in the morning, his tune changes to nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Because when he went outside to get the Dothan Morning Gazette, he looks up and he's like, look, and he sees this great, it says a great host of chariots and horsemen of the Syrian army surrounding that entire city. And I guarantee you, he is like, wait a minute, this wasn't here when we went to bed. But here it is. That's why I said he's thinking nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And he runs back in, I'm sure pretty quick to Elisha in a panic. Because what it says is there, alas, master, what are we going to do? They'll kill us. If we try to run, they're going to overtake us in those chariots and they will slay us. They'll cut us in half. Elisha had centurion eyes. And he said to the servant, he says, don't be afraid. For those that are with us are more than those that are with them. The guy's probably like, wait a minute. I might not have got all the sleep out of my eyes. Let me look again. What are you talking about? The odds still do not look good with what I'm seeing. It's still 2,000 to 2 or 10,000 to 2, however many chariots were there. What do we know happens then? Elisha prays for God to help the young man's faith, which was weak. And he says, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And it says, so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw So who opened his eyes? The Lord did, didn't he? And when the Lord did that, it says, and he saw, and it says, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. All of a sudden, in a moment, because God opened his eyes, this young man, he could see. Listen, they didn't just all of a sudden appear. They had always been there. What happened? Where was the change taking place? It's not that Jesus needs to have more power or more willingness to help us. That's not the problem. The problem is we need to see and have God open our eyes what power he has, what he's invested in him, and his willingness to help us. It's us that need to have our eyes opened, which is what happened then. Because all of a sudden, he's looking up there. He's not seeing all this earthly chariots. He's seeing heavenly chariots, angels, chariots of fire, God's army. Far surpassing, I guarantee you, it just overwhelmed whatever else he had saw before. The heavenly army. Here those Syrian chariots that just a moment before had put this fear and dread in his heart. All of a sudden now, he's like probably like, what's the big deal? Where before, just a few minutes, I'll ask my master, what are we going to do? But when he sees God, he sees into that realm, it changes everything, doesn't it? Like I said, it didn't create that angelic army. It was already there. And our trials and our situations, and look, I know it's all real. I go through trials like you guys do. I've experienced them in my life, and that's why I got no hair and gray hair. When these situations we look at, they are so big to us, just like Elijah's servants, and we cry out in fear, don't we? Just like the disciples did in the boat. They're out in that boat, and here's Jesus sleeping And this storm, and those guys were sailors, and they knew this was sure death that was coming the way this storm was. And they cry out to him, Master, cry out in fear, Master, carest thou not that we perish? He doesn't seem to care, and he doesn't seem like he's able to do anything about it. He's sitting there sleeping. He's unable or unwilling to do anything about our situation. And it says in that account that Jesus arose in the boat, and it says he rebuked the wind and said, 
unto the sea, peace be still. And it says the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, why are you so fearful? Well, how is it that you have no faith? You know what? He's saying, you still don't know who I am. And they didn't. Their eyes hadn't been opened yet. And that's why they're struggling with the situation. And here, when that happened, and they saw what happened, and they saw who just commanded that, and they're like, wait a minute, who is this? And it says they looked at each other with fear and amazement, and they said this, what manner of man is this? What manner of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? That's what we have to ask ourselves. We've made Jesus our Lord and Savior. We have to ask ourselves, what manner of man is this? What promises has he made to us? What has he said he will do for us as his children? What manner of man is this? The centurion answered that question with great faith. He saw who Jesus was. He saw beyond his physical appearance. He saw he was the Lord of creation. Wind and sea you have to obey. But not just nature. He said, I see what manner of man this is. He has authority over disease. When he commands disease, just like I command my servant, it has to obey. And it is going to leave. I'm saying we have to have our eyes open just like Elijah's servant to see our Lord, the one whom we're trusting for eternal life. We need to see him for who he is. The one that said all authority in heaven and earth is given, has been given to me. If you would turn to, we're just going to read it, Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Beginning in verse 16, Paul says, I cease not to give thanks to you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in what? The knowledge of him, that you can see him for who he is, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of the glories of his inheritance in the saints. And look in verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. This says in verse 17, the knowledge of him, not the knowledge of a force, but the knowledge of him, the living God. And that is what the Holy Spirit will do that's in us. That's his ministry. He'll open our spiritual eyes, just like he did for Elisha and his servant. That's the Spirit of God that opened that servant's eyes. And he'll do it for us. He opened the disciples' eyes. That's his work so that we can see. And what is it that we need to see? Well, there's three things there, but specifically we're talking about verse 19. What it says in King James, the exceeding greatness of his power. Exceeding greatness. He doesn't just say greatness, megathos. That'd be enough right there. But it says the exceeding greatness. That is greatness to where you have a point on a scale. Right here is great. And exceeding greatness means it just goes extraordinarily far beyond that. Far surpassing. So he's saying we need to see, he just basically is running out of adjectives, the surpassing greatness. I mean, you can't put words to it. The greatness of his power. And he's saying toward us. 
In other words, He wants to pour it out on us, toward us. But we have to do what? Who believe. We have to believe it. It's not going to just happen because it's there. We need to see that all that power is willing and waiting to be exercised our way. God is willing and waiting to exercise it. And that's why we quote this a lot too. But when the prophet came to Asa, when Asa wouldn't believe the Lord, even though the Lord had showed himself strong, he said, Asa, you missed it big time. You need to understand this. The eyes of the Lord, they're running to and fro throughout the whole earth. What are they running to and fro? They're looking to do something. It says to show himself strong in behalf of those whose heart is entirely his. Totally devoted. He is looking to do that to and fro, just looking for an opportunity. That's the God we serve. Once we see that God is willing and has the power to turn our way, then you have to do what? You have to rely on Him. The living God. We have to trust Him. And if you would, just turn back to 2 Chronicles 32. We have a perfect illustration of that there. And look what it says here. When Sennacherib is surrounding Jerusalem, look what happens. 2 Chronicles 32 Beginning in verse 1, it says, And after these things and the establishment, this is after Hezekiah has set Israel back in order. They're seeking the Lord. They have reinstituted the Passover. They've got things right, cleaned up the temple. It says, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and camped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes, his mighty men, to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. And look what it says down in verse 6. And he... Hezekiah set captains of war over the people, gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city, and spake comfortably to them, saying, here's what Hezekiah said, Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him. Why? For there be more with us than with him. He saw something too, didn't he? And he says, with him, verse 8, it's an arm of flesh. But with us is who? The Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Now, he's just given them a word, hasn't he? That's all he's done. But look what it says at the end of verse 8. It says, and the people rested themselves. So we're saying, you see it, then you have to rely, you have to rest on what God says. That's what they did. It says they rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. We've done that, and when we do that, you think the devil is just going to sit back and not try to fight the message of that we should rely on the Lord only? I've heard it from places I would have never thought I heard it from, that that's error. What's behind that? Because look what we have here in verse 10. It says, here's what Sennacherib, you tell me what spirit's working through that. Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, wherein do you trust? Whereon do you trust? What are you guys doing? You're crazy. You're going to trust this king that's telling you to trust in God? We've wiped everybody out we've gone against. He says, Wherein do you trust that you abide in the siege in Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give over yourselves to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God, <laughs> he'll deliver us out of the hand of the king of Assyria? He's mocking them. And look down in verse 13. He says, Know you not what I and my fathers have done unto, unto all the people of other lands, 
He says, were the gods of the nations of those lands in any ways able to deliver their lands out of mine hand? Well, who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people out of mine hand? And he's mocking them again that your God should be able to deliver you out of mine hand. And look what he says, verse 15. Now, therefore, let not Hezekiah deceive you. Deceive him into what? Trusting in the Lord? That's deception? Let not Hezekiah deceive you, nor persuade you on this manner. Neither yet believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people out of my hand and out of the hand of my fathers. How much less shall your God deliver you out of mine hand? Have you ever heard that voice in your ear? I've heard it many times. Many times. He's saying, they're guys, it didn't work for them. And what makes you think your God is something special? Or he's going to do something for you that he didn't do for any of these other people. Don't be deceived. Isn't that what it says? Isn't that what he's saying? I would say that's what he's saying. And look in verse 20, it says, And for this cause Hezekiah the king and the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos prayed and they cried unto heaven. Actually, Hezekiah went on a fast. Sennacherib sent him a letter. He spread it out before the Lord. He said, Lord, this is what this man's saying about you. He's saying, if we trust you that we're in trouble, that you can't deliver us and all that. And God says, he's not going to mock me like that. That's not the way it's going to work. He will see. Just trust in me, Hezekiah. It will work. And look what happened. Verse 21, the Lord sent an angel which cut off all the mighty men of valor and the leaders and the captains in the camp of the king of Assyria. He returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he was coming to the house of his God, they came forth of his own bowels and slew him there with the sword. And thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all other, and guided them on every side. That's what God does for us. So the question is, whom do you rely on? And it said the people rested themselves on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And the centurion rested himself on the words of Jesus. He says, just say a word, and when I hear it, my servant will be healed. He never doubted for an instance that it wouldn't happen. He knew it would happen, didn't he? Because he knew the one he was trusting in. And I would contend that the word of God is just, and God himself that backs the word, really more importantly, right? But his word and God is just as trustworthy today as it was in Hezekiah's day, as it was in the centurion's day, as it was in Paul's day when he said, Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Be of good cheer. I believe God. That's who I choose to believe, that it'll be just like he told me. He didn't have to believe that. But that's what great faith will do, won't it? It's not going to listen to the ones that's saying, don't you get deceived. Da-da-da. You can't trust him. Hadn't worked for anybody else. That's exactly what happened there in 2 Chronicles 32. Exactly what happened. God, I would contend, is a trustworthy being. One we can totally rely on. We can put all of our weight, and for me, that'd be a lot. We can put all of our weight on him. We can. 
All of our way. That's what it means to rely or trust on someone. That's the way they understood. That's what saving faith is. I'm putting my whole soul into your hands and trusting that you'll bring me into heaven like you said you would. And if you would turn to Psalm 33. I want us to look at this. Psalm 33, beginning in verse 16, it says, There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Verse 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him. That's where his eye is. And upon them that hope in his mercy to do what? To deliver their soul from death. That's what God will do. And to keep them alive in famine. Verse 20 says, Our soul waits for the Lord. Why? For He is our help and our shield. And our heart shall rejoice in Him. Why? Verse 21. Because we have done what? Trusted in His holy name. And let Thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in Thee. And I would say, Amen. What I'm trying to get at here is that centurion saw what we need to see, what Elisha saw, what his servants saw, what Hezekiah saw, and that is that God has everything we need, all the resources he has to deliver us from any situation we're in. We just need to see it. Now listen, Spurgeon said this. It's good. Say not my soul. From whence can God relieve my care? Say not my soul, from where can God relieve my care? Remember that omnipotence has servants everywhere. His method is sublime. And that means the way he does things is so admirable, it creates all. That's what I had to look that up. I didn't know what sublime meant. I said his method is sublime. His heart's supremely kind. God is never before his time, and he is never behind. Omnipotence has servants everywhere, and you may not see them, but you've got to believe that they're always there. And that's what I say. And Jesus says, hey, I have not found so great a faith. No, not in Israel. The centurion clearly saw the power, authority, and the willingness to help that the Lord Jesus had. And we just need to pray that he will give us the same vision. And by that, I mean not a vision. I mean the same spiritual eyesight. That's what we need to pray. So let's not be discouraged by what we see or by what we don't see. Because what did Jesus say? Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. And that word that doesn't change, Father, and that Jesus is just as trustworthy to deal with all the problems that we have in our lives and in this world because things haven't changed. People are still dealing with demonic oppression, with illness, with depression, with family trouble today, just like they did back then, Lord. And you were more than equal. You had more than enough. And your word was more than enough to take care of any situation. And you haven't changed. I ask you to help us to see that, Lord, and to walk in a way that doesn't block your power from coming to us, Lord, because you're more than willing to pour it out on us. And I just ask you'll clearly show us that and that you will do that. And you have done that, Lord. We know that you are willing and able, and we thank you for that, for being our God, and that you are a good God. And we thank you for all that in Jesus' name. Amen.